check one, two. There we are. Hi, guys. How's everyone doing? Good. Um, so we are in the middle of a series. We actually have uh, three weeks left of a series called Christianese. Uh, and basically in this series, we've been trying to go through tired old Christian phrases that maybe we've heard a thousand times and breathe new life back into them, right? Um, Christianese is a made-up language, uh, much like many languages are. Um, but Christianese is, is a harmful language because it has the power to separate us uh, from the outside world. When you walk into the doors of a church, that's a big deal, number one. And then number two, when you walk through the doors of a church and people start spewing language like, oh, I'm just in this season of blessing, y'all, like stuff like that happens and you don't understand the lingo, you immediately feel like an outsider. Uh, and I think there's been too much buildup around church culture, and especially in, in the Western church and American church, around the idea of that we have this separate language, this insider language that we talk about. Because when you see Jesus in everyday life, he's not using any sort of insider language. In fact, you know what's fascinating? The, the Lord's Prayer, which is this magnum opus, this tiny little, uh, little prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples and says, this is it. This is all you need. When the disciples ask Jesus, hey, teach us how to pray, that's supposed to be like a long, like, okay, get prepared. The rabbi's about to give us an hour and a half long speech on this is how you do it. You gotta be sitting this way, you gotta be standing this way, you gotta be doing this, you gotta be eat breakfast before, whatever it might be. You've gotta get this litany of stuff done. This is how you pray. And when they ask him, hey, how do you pray? Jesus does something remarkable. The New Testament is written in Greek, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The Lord's Prayer, though, uh, is written in Aramaic. Um, which is one of the only sections in Scripture that's actually written in Aramaic, and that was because Aramaic was the common tongue of the day. That is the language that Jesus would have been speaking to his disciples. And so when he says, this is how you pray, not only is it just this short, sweet, simple refrain of this is just enough, give us this day our daily bread, but it's also pray in your own language in what's most comfortable to you. Be simple with it. Don't try and use fancy words. I think one of the biggest fears of every Christian or every person who's new in church or anything is, oh no, what if they make me pray out loud? Has anyone shared this fear, right? If you're in a small group or something, and you're alone, like every time I do, I'm, I'm scanning the room going like, who can pray for us, who can pray for us? And it feels like Russian roulette. Like to everyone else in the room, they're all like, do not call on me. You're the pastor, you get paid for this. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard because we, we put this huge standard on, like, you need to speak and wax poetically, and all of a sudden you're using these huge $12 words. But the fact of the matter is, when you actually look at how Jesus taught us to interact with him, with God, with each other, it's simple. It's common language. And we don't need to keep fancifying it and fancifying it. In fact, it's time for us to strip all of that down. Because when we create a language that creates an inside and an outside, what we're doing is we're creating a really great spot for shaming people. Shaming people that don't maybe know the language, that don't know the insider stuff. And that creates an atmosphere of shame. And there's already way too much shame in the world. And that is what I want to focus on this morning, is the idea of shame. Um, we came home yesterday uh, to a dog that looked like this. Do we have that picture? We bring those house lights down. 
Perfect. This is Baloo, our little puppy. Uh, it turns out um, Baloo's an expensive dog. Uh, he, uh, he decided he would walk through a patch of glass, or we don't really know what, uh, but Laureen, my mother-in-law, was watching him yesterday as we were away at this retreat all day. Uh, and we noticed in the morning that he was kind of just like limping on his left foot a little bit. And then it got to the point where he was just kind of hopping around like a little tripod. Um, and then we were like, okay, something's definitely up. We should probably call the vet. When he got to the vet, and my mother-in-law is a saint. She took him to the vet. Uh, when he got to the vet, the vet discovered that there was a hole in his paw that was like that big. And it was infected to the point that it was hot to the touch. <laughs> and so poor Baloo had just been limping around. So $500 later, uh, we have this fancy cone that he has to wear. But it's known as the cone of shame, right? So when we came back, the entire family, like me and Chelsea, and Ch it's just like when he's wearing this and he's like limping in this little cast, like everyone just feels the hurt for him, right? Like I'm not looking forward to going home today because I got to stare at that all day, right? It, it hurts. It's shameful. And he kind of limps around and he whimpers around. Uh, but it occurred to me, and I was like, this was just yesterday, and I already knew I was going to be talking on this topic. I was like, oh, how many of us are walking around with our own little cones of shame all the time? Maybe not as dramatically, and you're not whimpering and you're limping, but just metaphorically speaking, how many of us carry that weight all the time? Shame is one of the biggest problems in almost every single culture. It's a universal language. It's prevalent everywhere. And we humans are so distinctly good at it. We're so good at it. In fact, the very first time that sin pops in the scene, we got Genesis 3. So there are two chapters in Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, and that creates this huge, beautiful, creative narrative, right? So there's seven days of creation, and it's beautiful. And after every single piece of that creation, God claims it's good. It's good. So the start of our story is good. That's good. The first two chapters, right? We have a God that's proclaiming goodness, 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 goodness. And so often in church, we skip past those chapters and we just go like, that's, that's yeah, that's fun. That's like kind of the the creation narrative and all that good stuff, but let's get to the sin part. Because <laughs> the sin part is juicy, and that happens in chapter 3. right? Let's focus on the fruit. It wasn't an apple, by the way, but let's focus on the fruit that they eat, and then when sin comes in the world, because that's the problem we got to solve. we got a, we got a sin problem on our hands. And I'll tell you, that fills seats, because fear will always make a crowd a lot easier than hope or joy or any of that. We are, we are uniquely created to love fear and to love shame and to love, 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 to shame others. But chapter three, there's a serpent, there's a, there's a fruit. We, we kind of, if you've been in church a while, you know this story. Um, they bite of this fruit, sin enters the world, right? It enters the story. But here's what's really interesting. It's not just sin that enters the narrative. Uh, it's actually uh, shame. As well. Sorry, I just remembered that there is a video of him really stoned on pain meds that we should watch before we move on. Perfect. <laughs> okay, that's enough of blue. Um, <laughs> shame enters at the same time that sin does, and too often we just focus on the sin part. We say, like, oh, it's our fault that we ate that fruit, or it's their fault, and so sin is here, and now death is here. But before death even enters the scene, shame is the vehicle that sin uses to move forward. 
in chapter 3, you have this amazing image of God walking through the cool of day. And I've talked about this a lot, but this is one of my favorite lines because it, the translation really could be translated as sauntered. How often do we use the word saunter, right? So I just picture God just sort of sauntering through the field in the cool of the day. Does this God, and sin has entered the scene at this point, does this God seem wrathful, nervous, mad, angry, excited? No, he's sauntering through a field after sin has come in. So this is something that we have to really, really, really focus on. God is not as concerned about sin as we are from the very beginning. And we know that because then Adam and Eve quickly go like, oh man, we're naked, get some fig leaves. Like, what's that gonna cover? Anyway, get some fig leaves and let's go hide because God is coming and he'll see us naked. Who's concerned there? Is it Adam and Eve or is it God, right? Because a lot of times we're taught a God with a big pointy finger who's going like this down to all of us, right? This God is walking towards us, even with sin even with shame. And so the sin enters, God's walking towards, and, and Adam and Eve feel shame for the first time. So there may have been an original sin, which was the bite out of that apple, but, or fruit, sorry, man, even I did it. Um, but original shame is the first thing that sin decides to do in the world. The first thing that evil decides to do in the world is to shame Adam and Eve to the point that they have to hide. And I love God's first two questions. These are the first two questions God ever speaks. All of creation count is, is statement, right? I'm saying things into creation. But the first question God asks of all humanity is, where are you? Where are you? And then when they pop out, they said, we, we, we hid from you because we knew that we were naked. And his second follow-up question is, who told you you were naked? Implying, like, I certainly didn't tell you that you're naked. I certainly didn't teach you shame. Who taught you shame? So I love this. The very first two questions to God, from God to us is, where are you and who told you that? How much could we benefit if we just kind of asked ourselves that question throughout the week? Where are you? Who told you that? Right? Especially when it comes to ideas of shame. Why am I so focused? Who told me? I was being shamed. Who taught me about shame? So right from the beginning, we have shame. That's, that's part of original sin. It's just shame, and it carries throughout Scripture. But God's first act when he encounters shame is, oh, man, yeah, you guys are going to have to leave the garden. This is going to be really rough for you. But he doesn't just kick them out like some wrathful, mean, angry boss. The first act that God does is he weaves clothes for them. And he places clothes around them as if to say, hey, this is the first step for me in terms of solving this shame thing for you. I don't want you to live in shame. And the whole story of humanity and God is God just constantly trying to ask those questions again. Where are you? Who told you that? I don't want you to live in shame. But the problem is, even though God like, keeps giving us opportunities and keeps kind of entering in on the scene and the, the scope of biblical history and all throughout the scriptures and the narrative, we see God trying to take away that shame, and we humans instinctively just reinsert ourselves right back in the shame. Because for some reason, we feel really comfortable with that idea of shame, right? It's, it's okay to feel terrible, right? Because I'm a terrible person. I'm awful. 
so I should feel bad about myself. And God is constantly going like, no, 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 no. Remember the first two chapters? You're made in my image. You're good. That's the original plan for you. You're good. Stop trying to put on shame. By the time Jesus comes around in human history, these people that Jesus was interacting with had shame down like no other time in history except for maybe today. <laughs> Basically, they lived in a collective society, which meant that everyone was connected. So if you went to a village in Jesus' time, you'd have you know, a blacksmith, you'd have fishermen, you'd have all these people, but these people weren't working just for themselves. And that's really important. Our American individualism uh, is, is really, really, really at an all-time high. Right? We work for what purpose? We work so that we can live, so that we can provide for ourselves, we can provide for our family, but we're providing in a nuclear sense just for the people that are around us, the people that we love, the people that we care about. In Jesus' time, when he would walk through these villages, and you have to really, if you put on that lens as you're reading through those Gospels and you're looking at the miracle accounts and you're looking at all of that, it becomes remarkable when you realize that every every community that Jesus encounters is interweaving, interconnected, and everybody matters to everybody. Even the beggars and the blind who are set out. The beggars and the blind in that day had no way of, of actually begging. They couldn't make it to the city gate. They couldn't make it to the temple. So a family member was tasked to take these people and place them at the gate every morning and pick them up every night. So even they had a role to play within the society, right? So everybody is deeply, deeply connected. If you're the baker, you're, you're supplying bread for the whole place. If you're the fisherman, you're supplying fish for everyone. Without these people, you don't have certain aspects of community. And without it, like you could likely die in that sort of desert habitat, right? So everybody is connected. And the way that they kept things connected uh, is really fascinating. They were all about two things, honor and shame. Honor and shame. And that wasn't individual honor and shame. It was collective, village-wide, community-wide honor and shame. The reason the story of the prodigal son is so offensive and crazy is because that son didn't just shame his father when he leaves and asks for his inheritance. He actually shames the entire village in that story. All of the community would have been marked. There would have been a mark of shame on that entire community because this person did what he did. Right? Everybody was involved. So honor and shame. So if you did something to bring honor, you weren't just bringing honor to yourself. You're bringing honor to everyone around you. And there are some really weird ways that you could bring honor <laughs> to a village. One, and this is true, is walking very slowly. I don't know why, but that was a very honorable thing to do. So if you encountered someone in Jesus' day, we just went to Hawaii like um, a couple weeks ago. I, really, I live a really rough life. Um, but in Hawaii, everything moves at a certain pace that's almost infuriating, right? Like, you're like, I can't, oh my gosh, there's one road, and I'm going to be on this thing for three hours. I could get there in like 20 minutes if this guy would just pull over, right? Everyone moves at a certain slow pace. Well, that's exactly what Jesus' uh, sort of existence would have been. In those days, if you moved, you moved slow. That was the honorable way to move, right? Because you're not in a rush. You don't need to get there that fast. You have plenty of honor, so you would walk very slowly. Even the, the temple steps... And the holy temple, like the center of all religious identity at that time for all the Jewish people, the steps were mismatched 
right? So if you looked at it, you would look at it and you'd say, someone needs to hire an architect. This is a terrible way to design a temple. It's really difficult to get up to. But the point was, when you got there, you were moving slowly. It was forcing you into an honorable pace before you got into the temple. And there are fun little other ways that you could bring honor, but most of it was very difficult. Moving slowly, providing for people, helping the sick, the poor, welcoming the stranger. All those things would boost your sort of honor level. But the problem is the things that would boost your shame level are like far, far outnumbered in terms of honor and shame. If honor was something I could fit it on a piece of paper like I have in front of me, right? If shame was a thing, you'd need a scroll and you'd roll it down. They had laws and rules for tons and tons of stuff that would bring shame upon you. And not just upon you, but upon your entire community. So everybody in Jesus' day is collectively scared that they're going to get shamed or they're going to bring shame and bring shame to everyone around them. Everyone is walking around on pins and needles because they could possibly ruin it all for the entire village. Because what happens when shame enters the scene and your shame meter goes above your honor meter is that God no longer provides for you. That's the thought, right? It's not raining anymore. Must have been Mark and all that shame he was bringing to the village, right? Like that's the mentality and the thought. So if the shame stuff goes up, then all of a sudden God isn't listening. God isn't listening. And obviously that is not the case. So when Jesus would encounter these people, he would walk in and he would try and bring dignity and honor and remove all the shame from the space. Just remove it, undo it, completely erase it, because where Jesus is, shame cannot exist. So even before Jesus, they needed a way for these people not to live in such abject terror. There's my notes. Um, and so they figured out this really fun way to do that. They, they figured out this prayer called the Shema. Anyone say Shema for me? I'm gonna wake up a little bit. Shema, oh that was, let's try it one more time. There it is. We're awake. Um, Shema comes out of Deuteronomy 6.5, and it reads like this. Uh, It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, if you were a good, pious Jewish person at that time, you would pray this once in the morning, and you would pray it once at night. Once in the morning to start your day, once at night to end your day. Why, of all prayers, all prayers, right, couldn't have been like a nice pump-me-up sort of a prayer, like, like, hey, you go get her, you go do it today kind of a prayer. No, it's, it's all focused on God. And then it throws this really interesting word at the end. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And we tend to think that's like emotions, right? Love all your heart and your soul. But the word for soul there is called nefesh. And nefesh is not separated from your body, Right? It's not this soul and body thing. It's, it's nefesh. It's all your essence. It's not just your emotions. It's your, it's your everything, right? And then we translate that word strength, but that strength word is meod, and meod is a beautiful word that really, really, really cannot be translated into English. Um, in fact, the best crack that scholars with far more degrees than I have have gotten at it is they say that this strength word is actually more like very, or they made up a word, and it's muchness. Muchness. Muchness is not a word, but that's the only way they could describe it. So if you put those together, we have very muchness. Love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your very muchness. Everything you've got. Why would it be so important for God to give this prayer to these people and for them to say it at the morning and at the night? And why don't we do it anymore? Right? Why don't we engage in that? I think a lot of it is because we don't face the same sort of like obstacles that they face on a daily basis anymore. But why would God hand this over to these people in this honor and shame society? And the truth is because if this is true and you're loving God like this with all your very muchness, with all your nefesh, with all, everything you got, that has to be the way that God is loving you as well. The tricky thing about a relationship with God is we will only feel as much love as we choose to pour out. We'll only register that. You are loved beyond your wildest dreams. So you're allowed to love God back that muchness, <laughs> that very muchness, right? Surely, if God is asking you to do this and it's something he wants from you every single day, then he's loving you like this every single day. It's a reminder of your very muchness, not of your shame, not of the bad stuff you've done. You are not equal to the worst thing you've done, right? And so this was a reminder for all of these people that, no, listen, you need to stop focusing on all that shame stuff and start focusing on your very muchness. Start focusing on the fact that you were made in the image of God, and shame can't touch that, right? But even saying it once in the morning, once at night, at this point, yeah, what do you do? Like, if you've, if you've sort of said something over and over and over again, like this Christianese thing that we're talking about, right? If you just say a phrase over and over and over again, what does it do? It loses its meaning. It loses its saltiness, right? It loses its bite. It just becomes this, this trite little thing off to the side. So when Jesus is asked what the most important command is, he quotes this one, and then he adds another one, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's like, I want to put, put some skin in the game now. I don't want you to just be pie in the sky thinking of this, and it's you, and it's God, and it's your community. I want you to literally be looking around you and loving with that much muchness towards your neighbor. That very muchness doesn't make any sense to our Western sort of eyes, right? It's too difficult to figure out. It's too big. And in fact, it's wacky big. And so Jesus has to tell all these stories to try and describe and get at what that very muchness looks like. Uh, and one of them um, is, is this very, very first act, right? In the book of John, the very first miracle, which is a very famous miracle, especially for the drinkers in the house, it's water to wine, <laughs> right? He comes on the scene and he gets to a wedding. And this is the first instance of a miracle that we see. And a lot of times we just equate this to the miraculous fact that he turned these huge cisterns of water into wine. But the miracle is not just that there was some sort of flip in the liquid that was inside. It's what the purpose behind that was for. So let's go to that scripture. This is, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Now, if you open up the book of John, it's going to begin, and it's going to say, on the first day. And then if you keep track, and it says, on the second day. And here we find ourselves on the third day. And then it says, a couple days later. And if you add them up, you get seven days. So the writer of John is trying to echo back to the first seven days of creation and say, ooh, look, there's a new creation. 
and I'm trying to remind you that it's good, right? That it's not shameful, but it's good. And this is the third day. What happened on the third day? God created all of the plants. He created the oceans. He created the lands. This is a day of outright abundance. This is a day where God is just teeming with life, right? There's so much. And so on Jesus' third day, on this new creation narrative, what does he choose to do? Uh, And actually, what does his mom choose to do for him? He says, when the wine ran out, uh, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. Uh, Jesus replied, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, if I replied like that to my mother, I would be slapped in the face. Um, What does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. His mother told his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby, six stone water jars used for Jewish uh, cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Oh, we had no more? End of the line? Oh, there we go. Uh, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now, if we're keeping track of all of those, and we go to the high number, and we say it's 30 gallons, Jesus has effectively created 180 gallons of wine. (laughs) That's a big wedding, or that's a problem? Uh, 180 gallons of wine. Now, uh, fill it to the brim, he told them. Now draw some from them and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called to the groom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. Now, what is amazing about this, again, is not the fact that Jesus creates 180 gallons of wine. And we get too caught up on, ooh, he can do wine stuff, right? Like, that's great, but in a pinch, if someone's, like, really hurting, I don't really care if Jesus can turn water into wine, right? I would really like a God that can, like, help me. (laughs) And the real heart behind this is help. You see, in an honor-based and shame-based society, if you ran out of wine at a wedding, weddings were these huge feasts. And every time you see a wedding, and every time Jesus brings up the the metaphor of a wedding, it's always to tell you what heaven is going to be like. It's always, whenever he talks about this kingdom thing that he's talking about, he uses banquets, he uses weddings, and the wedding feast is just this metaphor for what heaven will be. So Jesus is showing right here in the very first section of John that he's bringing heaven here, that he's bringing heaven to this wedding feast, and you're going to see it in action. And this is what the economy of heaven looks like. It looks like way too much. And so if you were throwing this huge wedding and you ran out of wine, the groom and the, the bride's father would both carry that shame because that meant party's over, and you were supposed to keep your guests there as long as they wanted to stay. That's why these things would go on for weeks and weeks, or days and weeks, right? So you wanted to keep them there as long, and so what Jesus does is he, he, he actually removes the shame from the groom and from the bride's father and says, here, look at how much my kingdom has, and there's no place for shame in it. Now you can remain in dignity. You can have your humanity back. You can be at the party because I have replaced your shame with dignity, with muchness, with very muchness, right? That's the idea of the kingdom. There's, there's so much. And yet we get so caught up 
in our world of the me, 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 give me, 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 scarcity, 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 there's not enough. How do you think these presidential debates would be going if we took on the attitude of 180 gallons of wine rather than scarcity? There's none left at the party, right? How do you think our country would look if we stopped viewing everything like a limited resource and something that's going to go away? What if we approached life with muchness, with very muchness, and understood that every human being that you interact with carries that very muchness and that image of God? That's what this Jesus stuff is all about. It's about creating an environment where that scarcity no longer exists. Another scandalous part about that prodigal son story, which we touched on two weeks ago, is when the son comes back, and there's the famous line of the father throws a ring on his finger and a robe around him. When the son comes back, that sign of the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet and the robe and then a seat at his father's table, scholars point to that and they say, well, it's kind of nuts because that doesn't just mean that he's welcomed home, but if you had a ring on your finger from your father and a robe around it from your father and sandals on your feet and you're sitting at your father's table, that would have meant a reinstate, reinstation of your inheritance. Meaning, and this makes no sense to us, like, no, he went out and he squandered all of that money, right? That's the story. He was eating, he wanted to eat pig food, right? Like, that, 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 he deserves this. The unfair part of this story, and the big brother is absolutely correct in the story when he looks in and he's like, you've given me nothing and now you're throwing this party. The real reason he's even angrier is because you just gave him back his inheritance. The thing that he wasted. Why would you do that? <laughs> what kind of person in their right mind would give that money back. And now it's taking away from my cut, right? Now you're getting double inheritance, and I would, this doesn't make any sense. And the father's reply in the story is that, hey, you don't understand, everything I have is yours. Everything. Meaning, like, stop trying to divide this and piece it up and, and focus on scarcity and shame your brother. No, like, everything's already yours. Everything. There's muchness if you only choose to do it. And so that story of the prodigal son is about a father reinstating his son's dignity and pulling away the shame. And also, because he would have shamed the entire community, pulling away the shame of the entire community to say, like, no, this will not be a shameful act. We will restore honor here. It's crazy, radical love. And this is Jesus' whole mission. Everywhere he goes, he's telling stories of people that are being reinstated. He's reinstating people. He's offering muchness every interaction that he does. This is one of my favorite stories. I think it gets overlooked a lot, but um, this is one of three times that Jesus brings someone back from the dead uh, in Scripture. One is uh, Lazarus, the other one's a, a daughter, and then this is a, a widow's son. Um, and I think this is fascinating. It says uh, Jesus raises a widow's son. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce that, but I'm just going to keep going. And his disciples uh, and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and, cons and a considerable crowd uh, from the town was with her. Now, this is great because this shows that communal aspect. This woman who was a widow has now lost her only son. And if you did not have a son as a widow, you were even more shameful. In fact, you were among the lowest citizens that could possibly exist besides lepers. And this is why Jesus has such an emphasis on helping the widow and always being there for the widow, caring for the poor. That, that, the reason widow makes it so often is because they were one of the most rejected people groups in all of antiquity. 
right? And so what's happening here is this is a crowd because it's a community collectively about to say goodbye to this woman, effectively, right? Say like, oh, her son is gone. That makes her even lower. Now we're going to have to kind of like shove her out. And so this is our big goodbye to both the son and to her. It's a double funeral. And when Jesus sees this, and he sees that shame, and he sees that community, and he sees a group of people embracing shame, his reaction is really cool. He says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the bier, uh, which is, would be like the coffin that they would be in. And the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So the miracle, again, it's not just the water to wine, and it's not just that Jesus just raised someone from the dead. It's that shame has no place near Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, he undoes shame. Even the cross. Somehow the symbol that, like, nice little church ladies wear around their neck now, that used to be an instrument of death. Like, it's like wearing an electric chair <laughs> as a symbol, right? You wouldn't, like, kind of stumble around like, yeah, this is an electric chair. It means a lot to me. Uh, no, right? But Jesus undoes the shame of that cross. And think of that act. There's a couple really important things about the cross. Jesus is on there naked. So where do we find ourselves? We're back in that garden. But Jesus isn't ashamed. And just like this story, he even gives his mother away to a disciple of it and says, here, here's your mother. He's making sure his mother is not a widow. He's giving her dignity even as he's laying naked on a cross. He undoes the most shameful piece of weaponry in the entire world. He undoes it. It's gone. And I love that. It's cross logic. <laughs> Everywhere Jesus encounters something, it's undone. Whenever he encounters shame, it's undone. He looks shame in the face and he says, listen, you have no place here anymore. And guys, he wants to keep doing that today. He wants to keep looking into your life and saying, hey, don't cry and get up. Arise. To every part of our humanity that tells us that we're not worth it, that we're lame. He wants to say, no, 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 no. He wants to look at that shame, and he wants to undo it. And we can do this in our daily lives just by ourselves. Let's do a little public shaming here. I love a story where, uh, where I become the idiot in the story, because whenever that happens, I recognize and I go, ooh, I can use this, right? I, I work in an environment where stories that I end up the idiot are often the best stories. You, you don't want to hear someone just be like, hey, I just kept winning and winning and winning. And that's, those stories are not interesting. So whenever a story happens to me that at the end I feel like, oh, gosh, I really blew it here, I go, ooh, but this will be fun in a sermon one day, <laughs> right? Like, so, so I love those. Uh, so today I want to show you one of the most shameful things um, that I ever did. Uh, do you guys know who this is? This is Jar Jar Binks. Can we kill the, kill the headlights? Um, George Lucas has gone on record. This is a Star Wars character. George Lucas has gone on record saying this is the most racist and incredibly insensitive character he's ever created. Uh, I loved Jar Jar Binks, <laughs> and so much so uh, that I was Jar Jar Binks for not one Halloween, not two Halloweens, but three Halloweens in a row, and here's photographic proof of that, right? Um, let's do a little more public shaming. I just got this picture from Bill uh, yesterday. Bill and Lib, happy anniversary if you're on the podcast listening. This was me five years ago. I look like a hairy kielbasa, right? Like, so th this, 
right? You, you could stare at it, right? So someone should have told, I look like a mixologist or I could host a Food Network show or something. Anyway, this sort of stuff where you look shame or you look at something you're embarrassed about right in the face and you make fun of it or you say you have no more power is cross logic. It's being able to say, no, 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 wait, you don't get the last laugh, I do, I do. We can take down that picture of me now, that's good. <laughs> I think that's enough of that, that particular brand of shame. Um, but I love that whenever I see someone doing that in life, I see Jesus. I saw it this week. Some of you may have seen this picture. This is a picture of the, uh, the border between the US and Mexico. And uh, a group of um, architects and artists uh, put these seesaws through the border fence so that kids on both sides could play together, even though they're separated by a wall. You see. The wall is what divides, what brings shame, what hurts. And someone took that and said, no, 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 I'm going to bring my very muchness to this, and I'm going to flip it on its head, and I'm going to make it something beautiful. We need very muchness like this in our lives. We need it when we have these tragedies like we had in Ohio and Texas just yesterday and the day before. We need creative very muchness to look in the face of those tragedies and of those people who commit those tragedies to say, look, there's a different way. There's a better way. Because the lie that those people believe that commit these crazy acts is that power is somehow subtractive. That power lies in people that can take something away from someone. If I can take your life from you, then I am the powerful one. I make the statement. But in the Jesus tradition, power is never subtractive. It is always additive. Jesus' power always adds to the equation and almost never takes away. Because that's not power. Power is when you can give life to a scenario and not take it. And that requires very muchness to a degree that we got to trust God for. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for being uh, present and here. And, um, and God, we just pray for everyone that was affected in those, those terrible, terrible shootings. I pray for their family members. I pray for their friends. I pray for those communities that are literally going to be affected. I pray that you would bring life, you bring very muchness where that's needed. Amen.